Welcome to In Discussion and the Heroes series with creator Dr. Susan Anthony. She was recently quoted, we need another hero generation. And she has a powerful idea for many of the interviews where she underpins the questions in her series with the archetypal themes of finding the hero within. After all, this is what her work is all about. She has invited people onto the hero series with her because they have had the courage to make the sacrifices and take risks necessary to inspire the listenership to look inside and find their best selves and to do something to make our world a better place. Our special guest today, Dr. Brian O'Leary, is a scientist philosopher with 50 years of experience in academic research, teaching and government service in frontier science and energy policy. He was also a NASA scientist astronaut during the Apollo program, the first to be selected for a planned Mars mission and participated in unmanned planetary missions as an Ivy League professor. Over the past four decades, he's been an international author, speaker, peace activist, founder of nonprofits, an advisor to progressive U.S. Congress members and presidential candidates. In his latest book, The Energy Solution Revolution, he describes the enormous potential of breakthrough clean energy technologies, their suppression and their logical necessity for our survival. Zero point vacuum energy, cold fusion and advanced hydrogen and water chemistry could provide us all an abundant future for all of humanity. In 2004, he and his wife, the artist Meredith Miller, moved to the Andes in Ecuador, where they co-created Montesuenas, an eco-retreat and educational centre dedicated to creativity and the rights of nature. Dr. Brian O'Leary joins Dr. Susan Anthony on the Hero Series. Welcome back to the Hero Series, this special program or series of four programs with our special guest today, Dr. Brian O'Leary, Susie Anthony. Brian, welcome back to you again. Hi, David. Glad to be back. And hello, Brian and David. And I'm definitely glad to be back. I'm, I'm really enjoying your life story, Brian. It's just fantastic. It's such a perfect fit for the hero's journey. We arrive at the ordeal, which is level eight in the journey. The biggest life or death crisis, where the hero's ideals, dreams or goals are in moral jeopardy. And here the hero engages the ordeal and faces his or her greatest fear, confronts his most difficult challenge, experiences death, and normally this is a psychological death of some kind, rather than a physical death. Only through death, shedding the skins of the former life and self, can the hero be reborn, experiencing a resurrection that grants greater power or insight to see the journey to the end? So let's see where Susie has weaved your ordinary and special world, Brian, your lives into this part of the map. In 1982, you experienced a near-death experience during an auto accident. And just like Susie, feelings of protection in a situation you shouldn't have survived... Can you describe that near-death experience, Brian, and also the real work that you undertook on yourself of then maintaining this expanded state of perception at that stage? Well, yes, David. Uh, it was an automobile accident. I was driving at a very high speed on an interstate highway. It was um, uh, in Massachusetts. It was one of those days where it suddenly got cold. A cold front had moved in. It had been raining. And then it was uh, slick ice, and I was unaware of the ice. Uh, I was by myself. I spun out of control. Uh, I did several flips and uh, ended up in a ditch. Uh, the car was totally wrecked, except for the area immediately around me. Uh, and I did not uh, experience any of the sensations of the accident. And this was a time, this was 1982, and it was before I really really got into my metaphysical exploration stage. So I didn't even know what a near-death experience was uh, or what the classic pattern of that was. 
And nevertheless, though, I experienced it, which in a way made me a, a pretty good subject. Um, I, what I had experienced was when the car went out of control, uh, I lifted out of my body. Uh, I could hear some dull thumps, uh, which was obviously the car just doing all sorts of violent things. But I, I experienced this brilliant light and bobbing spheres. Uh, it's really hard to kind of even relate the experience of words, but it was a basically very positive and ecstatic feeling. And then after some timeless interval, uh, there I was back in my body, uh, uninjured, um, let alone not killed. Uh, by all rights, I should have been killed in the accident. A uh, professional insurance adjuster uh, who had witnessed the accident, and fortunately I was the only one that was hurt, uh, thought that that I shouldn't have survived it. He was just amazed. I was almost like an apparition when I stepped out of the car and was I was okay. I was in some shock, but uh, feeling okay. Uh, that one experience for me did change my life. Um, I was in a very unnurturing, not a good situation. I was drifting at that time. I wasn't, I didn't really have a job and I was with a, a, a girlfriend who wasn't good for me or vice versa and so it caused me to take all my worldly possessions buy a beat-up old Ford van and drive to California for a new opportunity uh, this is when I was 42 years old um, and one would think that this this was not a logical move to make but it was a perfect move so it was Two things, really. It changed my life and caused me to kind of rethink my priorities, and, uh, but also to, to realize that I was probably protected, that um, the universe was meant to keep me going, and, uh, but I had to have some sort of contract with the universe in exchange to become more dedicated to the, uh, the service and the work that I'm doing in the world now. Susie, can you build upon that with a further definition out of interest of this psychological death for our audience? Well, yeah, I mean, Brian just summed it up. It, it was a feeling of having been chosen, protected, saved, and given back a life. But it's, it's a new life, and in return for that, he felt an obligation within to, you know, not clean up his act, but, you know, those are the words that come to mind, but, but just um, really dedicate himself to living with higher purpose and finding his higher meaning. And that's, that's classic of psychological death. You know, I had a client who was a fully trained psychiatrist, doctor of psychiatry, who had a very similar car crash experience in Glastonbury. And she had angels bending over her and talking to her and telling her, you know, she was being called to a, a higher way of living her life and just to trust. And unfortunately, when she told her medical colleagues, they had her sectioned and pumped up full of drugs in a straitjacket. And after about four days, they kept coming in and saying, are you still hearing those voices? Are you still seeing these angels? And every day she would say, well, yes, I am. And then on the fourth day, she realized she might not ever get out of there if she kept telling the truth. So... She said, no, no, on the fifth day, no, I'm, I'm not seeing anything. It's, it's all back to normal. Um, but, of course, nothing was ever normal for her again. And synchronistically, she was guided to my work and has since done exactly what Brian has done, really gone deep within to know herself, changed her life path. She couldn't stay in psychiatry because... You know, that was the old paradigm and, and filling people full of drugs she then had discovered from the inside out just doesn't work. So it's 
psychological death doesn't have to be a physical death. It can just be, you know, deciding to give up drugs, alcohol, do have consume. And then when spirit can reconnect with you or you learn how to reconnect to the hero inside and follow its guidance system, there's a whole new way of living that unfolds, which is much better than, than the previous way. Well, that certainly happened to me. And in, in fact, when I went out to California, uh, uh -huh. I, didn't have, I didn't have a job at the time. I knew I, I had to get one in order to uh, get my kids through college, pay for that. And, uh, and I did find one. It was kind of the last mainstream job I ever had. Uh, but it was a, a, a well-paying job. It was uh, in the military-industrial complex, but I refused to do military work, uh, but only do civilian work, which kept me there until they finally had to lay me off because I didn't justify myself uh, to work for them financially after a few years. But during that time, um, I, it was the time of my most intense metaphysical exploration. Uh, I joined a spiritual group, took lots of trainings. I, uh, it, it was a, a, a wonderful education as to our transcendent reality. And, and also during that, I, I, I did some intensive research on uh, how the scientific method can uh, confirm many of these experiential things that I was experiencing on a fairly regular basis in my first few years in California. So that near-death experience was, gave me a swift kick, and it was something that I, I feel needed to happen at the time, uh, albeit it was so violent, I, I just couldn't believe the violence of the accident and how it just totally changed my life. It's amazing, and isn't it amazing, I'd just like to interject, how when you desperately need the money for something, how it just always seems to materialize. It's quite incredible. And, you know, I often sit here worrying, thinking, God, how am I going to pay for this? But the worry is just a habit, I've realized now, because the money always does flow in. It's astonishing. And I'm, I'd like to quote, I think it's Saint Ignatius de Loyola, who works with John of God in Brazil, who my NASA scientist friend, Dr. Klaus Heinemann, has just been making documentaries with. And St. Ignatius, who was the first Jesuit and founded the Jesuit order, said, um, ordinary people say, if, you know, I'll believe it when I see it, but the mystic knows he'll see it when he believes it. <laughs> Amazing stuff. What about this word service? I was in Phoenix recently. <clears throat> I met this chap who had lost his job. And he said to me, what is your life about with your work? And I responded by saying, I'm in service. And he said, oh, he said, uh, financial sector, mortgages, funding. But it's completely different, isn't it, that meaning of service? Is this something that becomes very apparent at this stage? Yes, I think so. I mean, that's what the psychological death is all about. It's a death from me, thi me thinking, which is, you know, do have, consume, compete, judge, attack, win, um, which is quite an isolated way of living. And you're utterly transformed into we thinking, which is getting up every morning and instead of thinking, what can I get? It's what can I give and who can I, who can I help? And based, though, in, you know, on a solid foundation of giving to the self first, making sure that you're life is balanced and functional and that you're self-nurturing rather than just rushing out trying to put your arms around the world and save everyone which isn't healthy but service in balance and shifting your thinking from me thinking to we thinking is really what service is all about in my case um, 
it wasn't um, that my dear near-death experience in 1982 was the thing that caused me to suddenly do my my own paradigm shift and be of service. It, it was there were many incidents after that, uh, which kind of made it even more so. So now it is so inculcated in me; it's so much a part of me that I I now don't even have to think about it. But uh, during those years, it, it did uh, uh, open up new opportunities for me that I would never have dreamt uh, would happen. It was uh, just remarkable because then I began to realize our transcendent reality and, and begin to confront it and, and actually experience it as, as I was exploring all of these different metaphysical modalities um, during the 1980s into the 90s and to write books about it. and. So it, it's it's an ongoing process, but that particular incident was was definitely pivotal, and uh, with an almost physical and uh, certainly a psychological death. In this part of the journey, you met, of course, your partner Mare, and a romance kindled. Yet you also endured a surprising encounter with death and evil, uh, so typical of this stage of the journey that that Susie writes here. But in broad terms, Brian, how did this affect you? And you've already talked to this, but how were you able to transcend this, all of this pain? Well, um, yeah, I, I think a lot of these things just kind of happened to me without my realizing uh, the danger that I was entering into. Um, because by 1992, having spent 10 years now in an intense metaphysical exploration and going around to unity and uh, religious science churches and talking about new science, uh, I decided to work with some colleagues, scientific colleagues. Uh, we formed an organization called the International Association for New Science, and we were pushing for the support of new modalities of science, whether it be free energy or the disclosure of UFO information. and. Uh, uh, so I, I became a real advocate of that, and this was before it became um, a more popular thing. Uh, there are people like Steve Greer now who are very much into disclosure, and there are quite a cadre of people doing it. At that time, there was almost nobody. And um, there was at one point where people in black ops tried to recruit me, uh, I refused the offer. It was very clear to me that this was not consistent with my journey. But what I didn't realize that that, that was that that attempt was sort of an order uh, to uh, basically silence me from advocating disclosure or advocating free energy research. And so, uh, circumstantially, I had a, a, a really uh, horrendous experience. Um, it was a, a heart attack which might have been induced. Circumstantially there were a lot of pieces that, that, that seemed to point to that. And at least the possibility of that having happened and my having realized that maybe I was a bit naive trying to take on the world in the way that I did uh, was maybe not a wise thing but it was at least an experience I had that is well matched with many other ex people's experiences where the path needed to be somewhat modified uh, so that that I could still be of service, do my work, uh, still advocate these these very things that are that black ops don't like, but to be able to do it uh, with, with a, a moderate amount of personal safety. So that was a, another wake-up call. So David, can I comment here? on the importance of courage. You know, having seen some information material today on, on breaking the pyramid code, um, a PhD um, in Calgary University, I can't remember her name, but how these were like gigantic generators of energy that somehow raised consciousness. But anyway, that's that's probably a whole another program. But just to quote on on courage and Maya Angelou is is who I'd like to quote, and this is one of my favorite quotes about courage, that one isn't necessarily born with courage, 
but one is born with potential. Without courage, we cannot practice any other virtue with consistency. We can't be kind, true, merciful, generous, or honest, she says. And I think this is why the hero's courage is tested so consistently to ensure that we actually do remain bold and courageous because this ensures then that we can practice all the other hero qualities to live a life, as I've already said, much better than the life we were living before and probably much better than we could ever have dreamed possible otherwise. And heroes go within to determine what will happen if they don't make this sacrifice or take this risk. Whereas ordinary people moan, whine, complain, focused on what will happen if they fail. And let's go to another great Bible of mine. It's not Star Trek, it's The Lion King, where Mufasa, the king, is courageous and he's a protector of his family and his land. But he can't transmit or transfer these qualities to his heir, to his son Simba, who's merely a hero in training, still learning about courage. And if you remember, after each of Simba's lessons, his dark uncle, Scar, would immediately seek to destroy everything Simba had learned from Musafa, the king. And he did this by instilling great fear in young Simba. And we all have the courage to meet and overcome ordeals and tests. But are we choosing to do this? My witnessing has been that ordinary people don't take risks. And on some level, they know it. And this too leads to a loss of vitality and aliveness when they choose comfort, profit and greed over opportunity, the call to adventure, and when they fail to follow their passion to find their bliss. So ultimately, great danger, chaos and loss, as frightening as they are, are really only opportunities for us to display courage. And courage, by the way, is not the absence of fear. Courage is feeling the fear and taking the risk, making the sacrifice anyway. It's not even focused on the reward. It's taking the risk despite the fear. Yeah, I think in my case, um, it, what, what happened here, my near death, uh, which, which happened as a result, uh, most likely as a result of my uh, challenging the system, uh, at first it was naive. Then, in retrospect, as time went on, I began to, to connect the dots, put the pieces together, and begin to realize that, yeah, this is risky stuff. So wh what are you going to do with that? Well, my answer was, do it more. Because we, we, we have to move in these directions, and somebody's got to do it. And there were a few of us that, that advocated disclosure, and there have been others among us who have also, whose lives have been threatened or almost killed. So it, 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 I, I began to realize I was not alone. What, what amazed me at first was just how ruthless and evil uh, these people can be. Uh, and yet at the same time, I didn't let that stop me. Uh, and it never has. Thank goodness for that. Everything that you talk to is really hitting close to home today in my journey as you know Susie this is my one of my favorite levels the reward the hero has survived his first psychological death ordeal and overcomes his fear and now earns the reward and Brian just like Susie you did experience this astonishing phenomenon of near death that you have talked to and some call it and I certainly do these days a divine intervention and you survived as you both did this extraordinary death and resurrection experience but these psychological deaths and rebirths 
I'm coming to appreciate are altogether quite typical to varying degrees of stage A to the hero's journey that we've just completed. And Susie suggested to me that you both have direct experience, like the shamans of dimensions beyond the ordinary world of the five senses. And you both delved deep into the mysteries and power of the special world through these harrowing tests and ordeals. And then similarly reconnected to the hero inside and learned many of the special rules. And you also live these too. And you've learned, by the way, mostly through the school of hard knocks that I certainly resonate with. And you have both found your rewards and brought them back to share with all of us in the ordinary world. Frankly, I don't know which world I'm in at this stage, but I can see where this is going. I've got a foot in both worlds, I think. <laughs> Let me just ask you, Brian, we've already talked about the psychological death. The books, or the book of Maps to God, that I have read about ten times at this stage after the months, that reconnect to the hero inside. And in this, Susie does cite as her reward, which she teaches and lives in community. How do these special rules and guidelines compare to your own findings, to what you have unearthed in your own metaphysical studies and journey? Are they in resonance with how Susie sets this out? I, I think it really does, uh, David, and, and the more I think about it, the more I realize that it does apply, uh, even though there may not be, you know, let's say, life-changing instances. Uh, I, I can also address some of the confirmation phases, like when I had the second near-death experience, which was a heart attack. That was another um, amazing feeling because I, I, I felt zapped. Um, it was a red flash. I was on the floor in a pool of blood. Uh, apparently my heart had stopped. And a matter of a few seconds later, there was a white flash and I came to and uh, realized that uh, I was going to be okay, albeit with severe chest pains and uh, a fairly uh, substantial recovery period. And it was during that time and after that that I was able to really get into my true service or purpose in life, which was to bring forward this newer information which lies outside of the box of ordinary life or the ordinary world and by that point, by the way, I was totally on my own. I became an entrepreneur by default uh, and not having prepared myself too much to be an entrepreneur, it was uh, doubly challenging. But uh, little by little, um, I think I got more into the reward phase, which is what you're, you're, you're about to talk about, or we're about to talk about. What about Brian, when Susie refers to God as the God inside. Do you agree with that description, God inside, hero inside? Yeah, I, I would say so. Uh, in fact, I, I mean, these experiences were so personal and so poignant, and they did redirect my life uh, each time. And the first time was more uh, being open to metaphysical exploration. The second time was to truly get into my purpose and my service in a much deeper way. So, uh, uh, and, and all of these things felt guided by a power inside of me, which was far greater than I ever realized was possible. You moved to Los Angeles, and how did you find that path to enlightenment, especially when you were in Los Angeles? Was there any particular memories of that and the way that you achieved it? Well, yes, David. I, uh, I drove this beat-up old Ford van with all my worldly possessions and almost no money and headed to Los Angeles in 1982 after the near-death experience and the automobile accident and uh, uh, really got quite involved in a number of, of different um, workshops, retreats, trainings, uh, gurus, uh, you name it. I, I, that, that, those were my years of, of maximum education about our our transcendent reality and that really I think set up then some more experiences later in life which were 
sometimes bizarre, sometimes transcendent, but in every case, uh, fascinating. It was a fascinating journey that far exceeded my, any kind of anticipation or expectation. Susie emphasizes the importance of completing our shadow work and shedding the skins of the past. What do you, Brian, think that's best worked for you? Uh, that's a good one, and that's that's also a very difficult one. Uh, I, I've I've done a lot of different things. Um, uh, certainly, in, in some of my spiritual practice, whether it's through meditation, whether it's going to therapy, whether it's doing astrology, whether it's uh, chanting, whatever the modality is, uh, many of these things uh, help me along, and in my quest for understanding our greater reality. And I think helped form the basis that plus my years as a uh, rigorous Western scientist to, to be able to more easily join those worlds and say, well, we can have it always, folks. And, and, and so the, the journeying, everything was, was perfect. As, as, uh, and now in, in hindsight, uh, I began to realize that, wow, there is tremendous perfection in this life if we give it a chance and we allow ourselves to take the risks that many of us are, are taking now to be able to go get to the point where we can now integrate these things and, and help others. Susie, could you talk to that shadow work that we need to do? Well, yes, I can. And I, I can remember standing up in front of a group of 2,000 people in California and feeling quite afraid, intimidated, because after all, they had had thousands of workshops and hundreds of gurus, people that I'd spoken to in passing. And I just, I couldn't imagine what I was doing there or what I could share with them that would make any difference. But as I stood up there in front of them, the hero inside said to me, just ask everyone, you know, are you in abundance? And are you enjoying happy, intimate relationships? And sure enough, not one of them could put their hands up. And it's because they had gotten stuck, you know, reading spiritual books and going to spiritual workshops, almost like addicts, but then not actually ever coming home um, and allowing themselves time to live any of it before they went off to the new workshop or read the new book, not actually applying it. So in that moment, I actually realized why I was there and what I could do to serve. And... You know, the, the concept of dying to the old self is so important before the new life can come into being. And we all do need to shed the skins of the old life. All its false beliefs, conditions, conditioning and patterning. And this isn't easy. It's simple, but it's not easy because most of this stuff is largely unconscious. And M. Scott Peck, renowned psychiatrist, agreed. It's a lifetime's work. He still was hacking away in his 50s on a daily basis at all the less evolved parts of himself. And I know I am too. It does, as Joseph Campbell says, it definitely becomes easier when you have a map and a teacher. And I've certainly learned that we cannot fully reconnect to the hero within and guidance from the special world through spiritual disciplines alone, um, prayer, meditation, Reiki, it's not enough. We really, truly do need to sh shed the skins of the past in order for our special hero lives to begin. And I teach that shamanic psychological recapitulation is key here. When we're courageous, there's that word courageous, and it does take courage to go into the dark closets of the unconscious mind, but when you're courageous enough to embrace psychological recapitulation, it truly helps us to confront denials and clear unwanted emotional baggage. 
by truly challenging all that irrational, exaggerated attitudes and beliefs and expectations. And I show people how to replace self-limiting patterns of behavior with sensible, rational ones. And this improves emotions and makes for happier, easier, healthier, more fulfilled lives. And it's about being alive. It is about that aliveness. And for sure, it's painful. But the reward is there's also much more joy. And we do feel and look truly alive. I mean, people kept asking me when I first began to wake up, have you been on holiday? Have you had a facelift even? It was incredible because the years just fell away from me because I was living in harmony with spirit, aligned to the hero inside and being disciplined enough to follow the direction of that hero self. And what I just wanted to feedback, because I remember reading in Brian's notes to me, and I'm going to quote, he said, I became more and more passionate and expressive about the possibility of free energy and saving the rainforest through innovation, brackets, a lonely quest. And David, dare I mention that Gandhi quote of mine again, first they ignore you, then they ridicule you, then they fight you, then you win. And Brian, you are definitely winning now. Well done. Well, thanks. And that's, of course, the now. And, and uh, obviously, between those times, those near-death experiences that I've had and my metaphysical exploration, that since then, there, there have also been some really pretty swift kicks in the pants, uh, moving me uh, ever more into the direction that I'm feeling I'm going into now that, that feels good, that feels right. But there was a lot of shadow stuff along the way and a lot presented to me, uh, even as recently as 10 years ago or a year ago, but that's for later. Brian, between 1995 and 1999, you moved to Maui. And as you moved to Maui, Brian, uh, it would seem in sync with the map of the hero that you experienced more challenges, physical, emotional, financial, etc. Even two separations from your partner, Mare, as your drinking problem be began to escalate. And then you had talked about this. You adopted a new yoga discipline, which helped you somewhat, possibly as a result of which your consciousness about environmental issues and free energy possibilities deepened. And then you entered a stage of profound research and writing. In terms of the emerging age of super crisis that Susie refers to, especially uh, versus the climate change, do you think the collective truly appreciates the biggest life or death crisis yet to come? I think this is such an important question. The global clarion call to the hero's journey? Well, yeah. I, uh, well, I was in Maui, just to kind of recapitulate it. These were, they were tough years for me. Uh, I, I really didn't have my act cleaned up yet. I, I was certainly um, uh, more metaphysically aware. I was scientifically aware. I became more deeply aware of our environmental problems and solutions, transcendent solutions to those problems. But uh, meanwhile, those, those were very difficult years for me personally. Uh, and I was almost forced, uh, I forced myself into the yoga discipline because uh, I had sciatica, severe lower back pains. We were uh, evicted forcibly from, uh, well, it we were evicted from our, the house we were renting because uh, there were suddenly new owners and they broke the lease and they were moving in on us and uh, Mayor wanted a separation and all of these things are happening all at once. And I realized that I, I wasn't there yet. I, there was a piece of my own spiritual training uh, that was missing and the uh, yoga surely helped and it also propelled uh, 
propelled me to have even more experiences, very bizarre ones in Glastonbury of all places. <laughs> and so, so those, those were uh, years of, I'd say, more, more lessons, more trying to prove myself, but at the same time, beginning to do a lot of writing, writing books, um, uh, trying to get my message uh, honed. Uh, so, so they were very active years of lots of travel, uh, lots of discoveries of things that didn't work for us, like Maui, or, or maybe that I was drinking too much. Um, all of those things were coming up for me to look at. So they, there was a lot of shadowy stuff going on those years, but also a lot of achievement and a determination to just keep going. Focusing on solutions, and Susie is always telling me this, by the way, what solutions have you discovered in terms of alternative clean energy modalities? And also, how do you rate the importance of forming sustainable community, as Susie has? Is this information your reward, your gift to heal a troubled land? Uh, and it's also interesting that Gandhi and other great teachers have talked to change having to come from within each of us, one by one. Uh, do you agree with that? Well, yes. Um, indeed, it, it's at, at both levels. Uh, the level at which I'm working uh, ha just happens to be more at the global and national and regional level it it it, uh, it it it's just my approach but it's just one of several approaches that um, the sustainability is an absolute requirement if we're to survive these times and when I started to look at the figures the, the just the outrageous figures about how badly uh, humans are treating our planet it became more and more evident to me that that we have to sit down and figure out what kinds of energy sources do we want, uh, how, how can we have pure, clean, sustainable water, waste management, uh, agriculture, that these basic systems, as I was reading more and more like uh, the uh, State of the World series by Lester Brown and other books that, that just painted this dire picture, that the incrementalism of let's say solar or wind energy as appealing as they are, uh, it just isn't going to do it. It, it, it. it might help in certain local areas. You can build your own small sustainable community that, that has some of these features. And I, I say all the more power to you doing that. But when you're looking at the worldwide situation in general, uh, it, it became very clear to me that none of the existing energy alternatives is going to do the trick uh, to be able to replace the huge, huge demand for energy there is worldwide. Even if the demand were to be curtailed by a factor of two, you're still not even close to it. Uh, if you were to have a complete solar or wind economy worldwide, it would still, uh, uh, you'd, you'd have to use so much materials for the solar collectors and the windmills that that there'd be very few materials left, metals or plastics, uh, to be able to pull this one off. And so what I began to realize was that people in this planet uh, tend to have a very promotional bias. And uh, it's so easy for people to get confused and misled. And that we have to get back to first principles. And in order to do that, we have to then be able to begin to team up with kindred spirits. and. That certainly is, is the effort that, that I'm involved in now and as a collaborator with some of your efforts, David, um, to, to be able to really come together and ad admit, call a spade a spade, that, that, yeah, if we proceed in this direction, it's not enough. And one of my discoveries, which, which just amazed me, was that the green movement, you'd, you'd think that, yeah, I'm an environmentalist, let's join force with other environmentalists. But... The environmental movement as a whole uh, kind of died in the 1980s after Ronald Reagan was elected president of the U.S. And just how, how inadequate uh, the environmental movement has become, uh, it, 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 it just uh, floored me. And, and also the scientific community and, and the progressive, the politically progressive community, you, 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 you'd think that they were on the right track, but they're not. It's, it's too little too late. And 
breaking away from those movements as I've had to do is is a lonely uh, is is a lonely activity. It's it's taken me many years to uh, assess and understand the situation and understand just as well why many of these well-intentioned people in the green movement and uh, in the scientific community and the politically progressive community that 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 they're just not going to be the folks that are going to get us um, where we need to go. So uh, once again, it's it's life has been this process of of trying to understand a situation, size it up, and to be willing to break free of any kind of group that is not going to be able to do it, and that can be disappointing. But at the same time, it has to be done. As we have reached the end of the program, I would love Susie just to talk about those principles in closing and also in reference particularly to genuine community. Well, I think Brian has hit the nail right on the head for me. You know, he's talking about um, Greenpeace and green organizations um, who are falling short of the mark and why and I would say it's because they haven't done their own inner work and again I learned to balance my external mission with my own internal process and if I don't work on my own internal process in terms of conquering greed or lust for power or whatever it might be, I cannot have any influence over that in terms of planetary shadow and changing that. I have to change it in me. And, you know, Brian also talked about finding companions of destiny and forming authentic community. And it's like when we strike out on our own, we do find a new tribe and a new village of like-minded souls who become our new family. But until we find our new tribe, it is a lonely quest, as, as Brian mentioned. And so that act of walking away from the old is a very powerful act of courage, just as courageous as any hero who faces his challenges. But also it takes great courage, though, to, to live in spiritual community. And to the faint-hearted, it's a terrible place. It's the place where all our limitations and our egoism are revealed to us. And when we begin to live full-time with others, we discover our poverty, our weakness, our inability to get on with people, our mental and emotional blocks, our seemingly insatiable desires, our compulsions, our obsessions. Also our frustrations and jealousies and also our own shadow side, our hatred and our wish to destroy. But when we identify this ego behavior, bring it into the open, we can then disidentify from it. Literally in the moment, we are not our behavior. And we can change our behavior, and that's the quest of the hero. And Agent Smith in The Matrix said, we're behaving like a virus. And I, you know, you don't have to look too far to, to understand that we are behaving like a virus. And that when we've destroyed one area of the planet, we just move to another and start on destroying that. And I honestly believe that living in community now is key to achieving this higher purpose and this higher meaning and, and returning to higher ideals of love, strength and balance which we actually live. And it's not just individuals living a lie, being fooled by the matrix. We're all part of it. As a collective, we've put humanity on a collision course with environmental disaster industrial collapse and social chaos, what I'm calling this new age of super crisis. And yet we were put on this planet as caretakers and all we've done is taken and not cared. And whether governments of the industrialized nations will realize the danger and act soon enough to avoid environmental collapse and 
the consequent, consequent collapse, too, of civilization as we know it is still unknown. It's just not known. As Brian said, he fears it's too little too late. Um, so we could well be heading for a new kind of dark age with mass starvation, collapse of industry, plagues, looting, and collapse of governments. However, that too has its blessing because if these dark predictions do become a reality survival will then depend upon doing what the Hopis recommend and, and other wise nations which is finding our clean water knowing our garden because we'll have to eat from our garden and creating our community and remembering how to be good to each other and if we choose Peace on earth, David, it has to start in our own hearts. And that's why psychological recapitulation is so vitally important. It's key. That sadly, I'm afraid, brings us to the end of the program today. We begin the next program on the road back and we have to close it there. Dr. Brian O'Leary, we do thank you. And we'll look forward to sharing the fourth program in the series with you. Thank you, David. And thanks, Brian, and thank you, David, for just anchoring this in such a great way, as you always do. Thank you so much. And to our listeners today, I do hope that you have enjoyed this third in the series of four programs with our honoured guest, Dr. Brian O'Leary from Ecuador. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. And don't forget to visit the official website, theheroseries.com. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. Music